remembering a preacher from my childhood once that um, made comments after the singing of that hymn or carol, whatever title best belongs to it. You'll notice little hints at times of millennial views in our hymns and he was persuaded this hymn writer was a post-millennialist and had to correct him. And I thought even as a little guy, well, what about the millennium premillennialists believe of? Is it not going to be a blessed age of gold, as it were, as well? So, amen. Charity and eschatology, humility and eschatology, that's a rarity, but, well, again, looking for the coming again of this one whose first coming we remember. Well, enough of that preaching. We'll come to what we're supposed to preach today. Romans chapter 2. I want to begin again our reading in the opening verse of the chapter and read down through the end of verse 16. Romans 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Well, amen. We'll end our reading, and we trust again the Lord to add His own blessing to the public reading of His Word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts once again together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful as we come today to open Your Word that You speak plainly and truthfully to us. And we ask that You'll give us grace, Lord, that we might handle Your Word aright. Lord, that we might be mindful. Lord, it is a busy season. In so many ways, it is a happy busyness. 
as we prepare to welcome friends and family, to remember our Savior, to remember one another. Lord, we pray that in the midst of such busyness, in the midst of such gatherings, in the midst of this season, that we might be even more so, as we're called to do every Sabbath day, more so lifted above the circumstances and the things of now, we might bring our own now into conformity with eternity, the conformity with eternal truth to the eternal God. And so we pray that you will give us grace not to take these moments for granted, but that you'll draw near and give us help today. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We've come to a point in our studies in Romans where I just want to pause and remind you about the significance of always considering Scripture in its context. There are some statements in our chapter, like there are really in all of Scripture, that if lifted out of their context could be twisted to mean something other than what they really mean. And so it is vital that we keep context in view as we work through the verses that are before us today. I'm speaking particularly about the third of these five standards of judgment that we suggested and listed for you last time. I was optimistic that last week we would get through one and two, the easier of the five, if you will, and save this difficult third one for a later message. And, uh, well, today's message, but uh, we only got through one of the easy one and two last time, so I've got to get through that second one, and maybe I'm even more optimistic and unrealistically optimistic, but to go through the second one quickly today and then move into the third. But that third one, as you know, and you'll see from our reading and we rehearsed last time, these standards of judgment that Paul is putting forth before the Jew in chapter 2 Among these standards of judgment is the phrase that God will render to every man according to his deeds. And we see it repeated in various ways in what we've read already. And it seems at least, if we were to lift it out of its context and just put it out there, that well, some might draw from this a justification, a salvation by works. Well, can we just seek to dismiss that quite early in our thoughts this morning. Paul is working through an argument. He's working through a very tightly structured, carefully worked out argument. And that argument that we have underscored already in our overview and in our previous sermons, very plainly is to unfold the gospel of grace. Paul has said in that thesis statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just, and we've commented on that, the just by faith shall live. Justification by faith alone. That cardinal doctrine is clearly Paul's theme in this book. So it would be immediately self-contradictory for him to be teaching a justification by works in these statements we've read today. 
to underscore it even further, where are we in Paul's unfolding of that thesis? His opening argument is to put on display that men need this gospel of justification by faith alone. And so he's working through the sinfulness of mankind. He's working through man's inability to save himself in this opening argument. Unless we, again, could possibly misunderstand it. What's the final verse in this opening section? The revelation of wrath. Romans 3.20. What does it say? Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's the conclusion of his opening argument. Men can't save themselves by works. And so, there's really no question. There's no doubt as to Paul's teaching in Romans and the whole of Scripture's teaching with regard to salvation. It's plain. So we highlight, in some ways, the obvious, or the plain, as we begin today. There's a sense in which Paul has finished that opening argument at the end of chapter 1. He has established that there is light shining. There's a revelation that men can't deny. They seek to suppress that truth. They fight against it. God judiciously gives them over to their sinfulness. And we see that awful conclusion of man in the pinnacle of his sin, the pinnacle of his rebellion, his inability to save himself there at the close of chapter 1. And so Paul might move from Romans 1.32 to chapter 3, verse 21. The revelation of righteousness after that revelation of wrath. But he's mindful of an objection someone might raise. And it's this imaginary objector, if you will, that we've come to see addressed here in chapter 2. There's some that might say, yes, men are in guilt and need, but that's, that's everybody else. That's not me. What about the man who doesn't, as the last verse of chapter 1 says, not only practice those types of sins, but even sanctions those sins, encourages others to just pursue those sins. What are the man that says, I don't live that way. I don't believe that way. These things are wrong. We shouldn't encourage them. And Paul addresses that man. What about the man who somehow imagines himself free from that condemnation? that's explained in chapter 1. Now plainly, this applies primarily to the Jew. And the Jew is named in the 17th verse of this chapter, which is the first verse after what we just read. But obviously the Jew is in view in the opening verses, but Paul's kind of working his way toward that blunt statement. But as we've said before, We're going to be wrong if we think that the truth unfolded there only applies to Jews. That if only Jews can come to a point of self-righteousness. That only Jews can come to a point of self-justification. 
that only Jews can come to a point of thinking that they're different than the mass of humanity that live the way Romans 1 describes. No, it is entirely true that many modern Christians, nominal Christians, just as well, Paul almost uses such a phrase as the nominal Jews, as we'll come to the third chapter's opening. There are people in our day that somehow think, yeah, that's right, Romans 1. Look how wicked and how bad our world is. I can't sanction that, but I'm not like that. I don't sin the way they sin. And isn't that where the flesh always takes the argument? Placing itself in the best possible light and Happily placing those they feel themselves to be different from in the worst possible light. It's this that Paul's dismantling as he addresses the Jews. It's in this context that these standards of judgment appear. It's been interesting to me, I've listed five standards of judgment from this chapter, and I'll just repeat them for you now. Verse 2, God's judgment is according to truth. Verse 5, God's judgment is according to righteousness. Verse 6, which we want to approach today in a moment or two or three, is judgment according to deeds. Verses 11-15, to judgment according to what we'll call light. Living up to the light we have, as it were, we'll deal with that in the future. And then the last verse of our reading and of this section, judgment according to the gospel. But I say it's been interesting to me reading various commentaries and listening to various sermons on this portion of Scripture that the list can be tweaked a little bit, as it were. it's, It's Paul looking at the judgment of God and his standards of judgment from a host of directions all of which are part of this main goal and intention of robbing this potential objector, robbing him of any hope of self-justification. Robbing him of any hope of self-righteousness. And so, again, it is in that context that all of these statements are made. So I want to come today to address again or progress in these standards of judgment. But I want to rehearse what we looked at last time. The first of these is judgment according to truth. And again, that objective is to rob, I didn't use this phrase, I want to come to it before I go on, is to rob this potential objector, obviously, Jews most notably in his mind here, but to rob this potential objector of any false security. To lay him bare before the eyes of his God. That's what he's seeking to prove. The whole world is guilty before God. And so much like our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount addressing the self-righteous Jewish mindset, He begins to dismantle that self-righteousness. 
He begins to, in so many words, point them to the true nature of the law of God. To how all sinners appear with reference to that law. That law that we can't reduce as we often say the legalist does. And we don't think of it this way first off. Legalists reduce the law of God. They don't expand it. They reduce it to a keepable standard. They reduce it to something they can say, I have checked that box. So say what you will about the other guy. I'm okay. Is that really what God's law is? Something that can be reduced to a box that a fallen, depraved, sinful son of Adam can check and say, not guilty. No, God's judgment is according to truth. We saw last time and fleshed out and labored the points looking at that truth negatively. Judgment according to truth is not according to appearance. You can look different than the world and not be different than the world. It's not according to relative comparison. You can't say, well, since I haven't fallen into the depths of that kind of sin, then I'm not guilty of that kind of sin. And God's judgment is not according to ecclesiastical conformity. Making our own definitions of Christianity. I belong to the right church. All of that. Can I say I'm all for belonging to the right church? Maybe better said, belonging to the right kind of church. But when we just say, I've achieved that. You can be born into a family that's part of the right kind of church. You can survey, I almost said the yellow pages. Where did that come from? You can survey the internet. Okay, that's better. And and find a a faithful church. Say, I'm going to go there. Because I want to identify with that. And be lost. God is not going to ask you on the day of judgment, where's your church membership? Or to put it in modern context, where's your church attendance? Usually. I almost ended that with a preposition. At. God's judgment isn't according to ecclesiastical conformity. It's according to truth. And what is the truth of the matter? Well, that's where Paul's taking. He's going to prove Jew and Gentile alike, all the world guilty before God. All the world needing this imputed righteousness that is freely given. Grasped by faith. So God's judgment is according to truth. Let me try and quickly preach last week's second God's judgment is according to righteousness. He says there in that fifth verse, 
So I've turned to a, a different portion in Scripture already, but verse 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's judgment is according to righteousness. Now if I can hasten through what we were to have looked at last time, a judgment according to righteousness is going to reflect certain things. It's going to reflect the character of the judge. I don't have time today in this overview of what should have been preached last time, but when we look at the law of God, why is the law of God what it is? It's because God is who and what He is. The law is a reflection of God's character. It's God's own being and character that defines right and wrong. He's the Creator. He defines right and wrong because He is righteous. Paul writes to Timothy and even uses that phrase, which God the righteous judge shall give me at His appearance. The law then isn't something that's mutable. It's not something that can be changed. Well, let's just... We had a brief visit with Jan's sister and brother-in-law yesterday. They were driving through to spend Christmas with Jan's mom. He's a public school teacher. Well, there's no lull in conversation about circumstances in the public schools and all of that today. And in even some of the lesser matters that came up, grading standards and even the scale of percentages, what's an A and a B and a C and a D and what what constitutes failing. I can't get into that. Some of it's humorous and some of it's just pitifully sad. But you know, let's just change the grading scale so that Students look better. And we don't have as many failures, and then our school looks better, and then, I don't know, maybe funding comes into types of things, and on and on it goes. God's judgment isn't like that. He doesn't change the rules in order to let people in. It's one of the things many of us have found comfort in in coming to the doctrines of grace. Because again, I don't think in some ways it's intentional. But in the Arminian preaching of the last two generations among American evangelicals who didn't know themselves or label themselves to be Arminian, they preached the Gospel on Arminian terms. And faith became the work that God accepted in us in lieu of perfect righteousness can't be perfect, but if I can just do this, then I get in. God's lowered His standard in order to let me in. That's not articulated, but yet for many they understand. God's righteous. How can He let me in if I'm not completely righteous 
and he still be righteous. And that begins to eat away at our assurance. And then we begin to examine not the person and work of Christ, we begin to examine our act of believing. Well, maybe I didn't do it right. And on it goes, and we could pause and go around the room and give testimonies. When we understand that God's judgment is according to righteousness, and that that righteous law is a reflection of the righteous judge, and that righteous law can't be changed. And then we hear the news of an imputed righteousness. Beyond that, we understand that news to be that Christ came, what we celebrate in this Christmas season, that point in the fullness of time, when the promise of that second man, that second, that final representative of His people came. And He came in our nature. He took that nature into union with Himself. And He placed Himself under the law. And He perfectly obeyed the righteous, immutable law. God's judgments according to righteousness. These truths will be fleshed out much more fully in chapter 5. But this reflects the character of the judge. It also will reveal the state of all who appear at that judgment. Because as we come to that bar of judgment and we're judged according to that standard, well, of course, then the line of demarcation is going to be who by this standard can be accounted righteous. Well, what he's working through now is in themselves, Jew or Gentile, really bad or just really bad. No one lives up to that standard. But that standard has been granted. It's been reckoned. It's been counted as being fulfilled by all those in the One who did fulfill it. And here's the Gospel. And Paul is seeking to prepare the soil even of the hardened, self-righteous Jewish heart to get him to think rightly about his God. With the God of Moses, with the God of the prophets, with the God who's revealed Himself in the Old Testament Scriptures so plainly, change a standard of judgment based on some external religious duties? Based on some external imperfect pursuit of righteousness? This judgment according to righteousness, and I look at our clock and I must say our main point for today will be the main point for whatever Sunday we come to it in January. 
but it will require the execution of a sentence. You can't say that the law is immutable, that the law reflects the character of the righteous judge, and that that law will reveal the state of all who appear before that judgment seat. And of course, outside of Christ, that law condemns all. That sentence rests upon all humanity. Because all of us were in Adam, he'll unfold when he fell. We have to be released from that condemnation. The Jewish mind here has thought somehow he's not under that condemnation. That the Gentiles, we can say they're under that condemnation. And since we're different than them, since we don't go as far as they go, we're not under that condemnation. Oh, that day will declare, as Paul states later, the secrets of men. That day will declare the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in that day, the God who cannot change His law will be shown to be the one who cannot and will not change the execution of His law. God cannot say, well, my law doesn't change, but I won't honor. I'll let it say what it says, but I won't do what it requires. No, He will execute the sentence. He will say in that day, depart from Me, all ye that work iniquity. He'll say even in that day to Jews and religious, professing Christian Gentiles alike, there'll be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord, Have we not done this and this and this in Your name? Are we not in this way and this way and this way different than the world? And He will say, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. I never knew you. You're not in Christ. And My law exposes you for who and what you are. A lawbreaker. That's why the, the heart of the true believer, the heart of the true Christian, is as the heart of the Puritan that said, I have looked at my good works and my bad works, and I have lumped them together into one and fled from them both. The Jew had only known his own scriptures that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God's righteous judgment is based on God's righteous law. What a humbling thing this is. Can we not say, believe? What we've unfolded through this is a fearful thing for the unbeliever that somehow, again, 
takes the place of this imaginary objector in chapter 2 and says, yes, all that in chapter 1 is fine. The Gentiles and their open wickedness, they're condemned. But somehow I'm not because I'm different than them. You may be different than them in degree, but not in kind. You may be different from them, but you're also different in God's law. You have failed to conform to God's law. You have failed to exhibit true righteousness. And so you are going to need a Savior too. You're going to need a Gospel of grace too. And of course the theme of the book is that is freely given in the Lord Jesus. The point of this second chapter, and maybe I know maybe indeed falsely optimistic, Preach about false security. Preach about false optimism. Well, the point I announced to preach on today will will be, Lord willing, in January. But this second one, again, a theme I trust, a truth I trust, familiar to us here. But maybe the Lord had us pause on a little more today as well. God is a righteous judge. His judgment's according righteousness by that standard all men Gentile and Jew irreligious and religious must flee from themselves unto Jesus his judgments according to truth his judgments according to righteousness may God give us grace humbly and happily to admit that and submit not to a self-justifying gospel, to a God who is just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that You might take what is perhaps to most if not all in this room, familiar truth, and yet impress it upon us once again. Lord, whether it needs to be impressed as a convicting power or impressed as an overwhelming joy to see that perfect standard fulfilled in Jesus and counted as mine. So Lord, bless Your Word. To every heart today we ask in Jesus' worthy name, amen.